National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, November 1st, 2023, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together every Wednesday here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security challenges and opportunities, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to explore national security challenges and opportunities. Sometimes we're even joined by people from around the world, and today is one of those days. Uh, Today will be the first of a couple of shows where we're going to explore the national security interests associated with the Central Asian Republics. The nations of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan comprise the five main nations of Central Asia, and there is so much that we as Americans do not know or even understand about this vitally important region of the world, and that it behooves us to learn more about the people in these amazing nations, and that's why we're going to do this series of shows. Uh, for, for today's show, however, we're going to be focusing on four of the Central Asian republics, leaving out Kazakhstan for another show. With us to explore the Central Asian republics are two guests. Uh, Esfandiar batman Gelich has joined us once before to discuss the Islamic Republic of Iran and the Middle East in general, and he's with us again today. Esfandiar batman Gelich is the founder and CEO of the Bursa and Bazaar Foundation, a think tank focused on economic diplomacy, economic development, and economic justice in the Middle East and Central Asia. He has published peer-reviewed research on Iranian political economy, social history, and public health, as well as commentary on Iranian politics and economics. He's also conducted extensive research on sanctions effect effects and is a core member of the Advancing Humanitarianism Through Sanctions Refinement, or the AHSR initiative. He's a council member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on the Future of Growth for the term of 2022 and 20, or 2023 and 2024. From 2021 to 2022, Esfandiar was a visiting fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And prior to that, from 2018 to 2020, he was a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, writing on Middle East politics and economics. He holds a bachelor's degree in political science and Middle Eastern studies from Columbia University and an executive master's in public administration from the London School of Economics. Our second guest is joining the show for the first time. Timur Umorov is a fellow at the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center, part of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. His research is focused on Central Asian countries' domestic and foreign policies, as well as China's relations with Russia and its Central Asian neighbors. A native of Uzbekistan, Timur Umorov has degrees in China studies and international relations from the Russian Presidential Academy of National Economy and Public Administration, and Moscow State Institute of International Relations. He holds a Master of Arts in World Economics from the University of International Business and Economics in Beijing. He's also an alumnus of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center's Young Ambassadors and the Carnegie Endowment's Central Asian Futures Programs. Prior to joining Carnegie, Umarov worked as an assistant to a deputy director in the Chinese automobile manufacturer Lifon Group's Commonwealth of Independent States representative office, where he was responsible for the development of business in Central Asia and the South Caucasus. Uh, Tamar Umarov, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, John, thank you for having me. And where are you sitting for our show this morning? Uh, I'm sitting in Berlin, in Germany. All right. <laughs> so uh, all the way over in Europe, and uh, Yar, uh, Asfandiar batman Gallage, you go by Yar. Uh, where are you sitting this morning? Uh, I'm in London, All right. sitting in my work-from-home desk. 
So I, I mentioned to the two of you that I was very excited to explain to our all of our listeners that the, the, we we have mastered the art of technology. We are having this Zoom conversation. We're live on the radio, despite the fact that we're spread across the world. This is great. Uh, so, gentlemen, I, we have a lot to discuss today. I want to make sure we take full advantage of your expertise. Let me start with this question. We're going to go back in history a bit and start our discussion from from the time of the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. That was when the many republics that formed the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, their USSR, gained independence and, and theoretically the right to self-determination. Uh, I'll ask each of you to give us your thoughts on the transition from being part of the USSR to the modern independent nations of today. Uh, Tamar, let me, let, me, let me start with you. So... I want to start by saying that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a big trauma for uh, millions of people who uh, used to live in this uh, united country. And uh, before it happened, um, all of the republics uh, of Soviet Union had um, uh, referendums in in in, uh, in inside of their uh, countries, and uh, the majority of people were against of uh, dissolution of the uh, Soviet Union. However, it happened. Um, and uh, when we speak about Central Asian countries, we should also understand that um, before Soviet Union, uh, five Central Asian countries did not exist exist in the modern uh, you know way um, as, as we uh, see them, see them today on the map um, it was um, a um, you know um, more or less united region with the Kazakhstan uh, being conquered by Russian Empire uh, far um, before the uh, 20th century and uh, there were different canates uh, in um, other Central Asian countries so so uh, the current political structures of uh, the Central Asian countries were actually, um, uh, you know, designed during uh, Soviet period. And that is why when the collapse happened and we entered the period of transition from one country to five uh, separate and independent ones, um, those polit political structures actually remained. And even today, uh, we live um, in, in the region where the leaders of the region are those who started their career in Soviet structures. Um, and it is, um, you know, on the one hand, um, fascinating um, how much legacy the Soviet Union um, has left in the region. On the other side, it is, of course, uh, the biggest problem that the region is facing today, because uh, the uh, majority of the populations of Central Asian country do not remember Soviet Union at all. They were not alive uh, during that time. More than 50% of the uh, population of all five Central Asian countries is younger than uh, their own independent countries. Uh, they are younger than 30 years. Um, and um, at the same time, we have the political elites who are older than 60. Um, and uh, because of that, there is a huge uh, disproportion in a way people look at the future of their countries and uh, the political future of, uh, of the development of their countries. And that is why we have a lot of um, you know, uh, arguments inside of uh, the uh, societies, uh, mis disagreements between the population 
organization and the government. Um, and uh, I would say that we are still in the transition and we are actually entering the new chapter of this trans transition with the new political elites being, uh, being you know, appearing on, on the political arena in um, Central Asian countries. We've seen uh, the first transitions of power uh, in uh, Turkmenistan in 2016, in um um, sorry, in 2013, Uzbekistan 20, uh, 2016, then Kazakhstan 2019, um, and um, in, in Turkmenistan very recently, uh, two years ago. And now uh, everyone is waiting for the transition to happen in Tajikistan. Um, so the, this would be the uh, second generation of political elites coming to power, um, and uh, the future of uh, those five countries will depend on how these people, who didn't start their career during Soviet times, but uh, their parents did, um, how these people, um, you know, will shape the future of the political um, atmosphere in the region. Okay, and uh, Yar. I think that's a fantastic kind of description of the moment from Timur. Um And what's interesting is that there, is, there does seem to be a recognition among uh, leaders in the region that the inherited structures and institutions that, you know, are the legacy of the Soviet Union, they're not really suited to meeting the challenges of the time. But at the same, on the other hand, there is this idea that transformation and stability don't often go together. And one thing that you see with regard to questions around political, economic, and social reform across the region is how do you balance the need to really change institutions uh, dramatically in order to make these countries competitive on the global stage, more um, sort of economically successful, raise living standards, more politically representative, but how do you do that in a way that isn't inherently destabilizing, given, as Tamor mentioned, these are young republics that are still finding their feet in a complicated region and have a lot of history to contend with. And I started traveling in the region uh, back in 2019, particularly to Uzbekistan. And what's been really interesting is that this debate continues, even as a country like Uzbekistan has uh, embarked on some pretty substantial reforms, and we can talk about um, where those reforms have succeeded, where they have failed to date. But there is this idea of trying to learn from the experience of other countries that have gone through a uh, post-communism transition. And, you know, we are now at a point where there are success stories and there are cautionary tales. So you can look at the success of a country like Poland, that uh, was a country that came out of uh, basically its um, uh, experience of communism, is now a member of the European Union, is a country that has performed remarkably well economically, where living standards have uh, improved dramatically for the average Pole. And uh, and look at and consider that a, a success case that maybe should be followed um, and try and understand what was it that made the Polish experience of transition successful. But then you have another cautionary tale, and the big one really is Russia, actually. And there is this kind of reckoning now that the particular attempt to reform Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, make it a more um, market-based economy, make it a more politically liberal country, has probably not gone the way that people had expected, and those uh, lessons need to be learned. And of course, the failure 
of Russia's post-Soviet reform is casting a shadow on Central Asia as well. And I think this weighs heavily on the minds of leaders in the region who are interested in stability, not just from a national interest perspective, but also from a personal interest perspective. You know, these are um, the rulers in Central Asia are, of course, individuals very motivated to stay in power uh, as long as they can. Uh, let me let me ask both of you this, uh, Tamar. You know, as as an Uzbek native, uh, Yar, you've traveled the, the region. It's my understanding, and maybe I'm ignorant about this, so correct me if I'm wrong. But during the days of the Soviet Union, uh, there, there was a lot of pressure on on not really uh, speaking your your native tongue a, a, from whatever ethnic group you may have been in in the region, and everybody was trying to learn Russian. Uh, today, you have a lot of people who are who are bilingual in Russian, and there's been a resurgence of you know cultural heritage, the being proud of your ethnic group and and the native tongue, Uzbek. Tajik, etc., has made a resurgence in the region. Is that is? Am I right about that? Do I have that right? E- either one of you. No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, because uh, if we go back to Soviet Union and um, um, you know go back to the early uh, 1920s when uh, there were many debates in Moscow on how to. Uh, Design the uh, nation building um, policy I- around USSR. Um, uh, the uh, you know the thing that uh, Moscow uh, came out with, and uh, Joseph Stalin was uh, one of the uh, you know main designers of this uh, of this technique, is to um, um, you know identify the uh the 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 nations um in uh created kind of borders in uh central asian countries and uh to name one nation as a majority and all others will be the minorities in each of the uh central asian countries and it was specifically made to uh make it impossible for the natural uh, kind of uh, national uh, building campaign to happen um in in Central Asia countries, um, so it's it was kind of uh, forced. For example, um, cities uh, like uh, Bukhara, Samarkand were included into the territory of Uzbekistan, uh, but uh, logically speaking, these are Persian-dominated cities that are not, um, you know, Uzbeks. I myself, as uh, you know, identify as uh, Tajik. We speak Tajik at home. Um, but at schools, we uh, didn't have a chance to learn Tajik. And uh, if you will, um, you know, would go to Uzbekistan during the uh, Soviet Union, you wouldn't see any Tajik, um, you know, uh, on 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 the uh, official documents or uh, in in literature, or whatever. If we're speaking about Uzbekistan, um, so. Um, uh, when uh, Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Islam Karimov, the first president of Uzbekistan, continued actually the same uh, national uh, policy in Uzbekistan, and uh, there was this uh, majority, uh, uh, ethnic majority of Uzbeks and all other minorities. Uh, in theory, everyone should be living in peace and friendship, uh, but in fact, there are, um, uh, you know, some discrimination. Discriminative uh, policies against.
against uh, the uh, minorities and one of the examples of how it uh, you know uh, can turn out was the last year's huge protests in uh, Karkov, Pakistan, which is the autonomous republic inside Uzbekistan. Um, and, um, um, you know, because of that, there are uh, many, many conflicts and uh, the um, uh, national policy of uh, all Central Asian countries to today, I would say, um, is very much Soviet. Um, and uh, this is actually one of the main problems of why uh, we have crisis of identity. Um, and if you speak to many Central Asians these days, they are still trying to figure out who they are. Mm. Um, and we are in the very beginning of this process. And you are? The only thing I can add to that is that um, this kind of attempt to reclaim national identity and the move away uh, from the Russian language as kind of the the key language that particularly young people feel that they should be learning, um, it has this really interesting effect where English has become much more important in the region. And this has opened the door, I think, for engagement with the wider world, because of course, you know, having an ability to speak English is so important for dealing with um, all cultures around the world at this point. Uh, but of course, that's also something that is, I think, particularly relevant for um, uh, Americans and for U.S. policymakers, the idea that this is a region where uh, increasingly young people feel that they should be learning English to, to seek their own advancement and empowerment. Um, and that's something that is also reflected in, in U.S. policy. So when uh, Secretary of State Blinken was recently in the region, one of the relatively few concrete things he put on the table, and we can talk about why there were few concrete things, was um, additional funding for English language education. And I think what's interesting about it is that it it may furnish and it may support an emergence of a regional kind of um if not identity and ability to engage in greater regional dialogue that doesn't have to be connected to the political baggage of the Soviet legacy. So one thing I've seen is that, you know, we're in a situation now where if young people aren't necessarily learning Russian as um, committedly as, let's say, they're learning English in school, if you have a meeting between young Uzbeks and young Kazakhs and young Kyrgyz uh, students, it's very possible that in order to speak to one another, they might actually turn to English. Um, and that's something that is not uncommon around the world. You would see it in, in Europe, for example, or in, in other regions where you have this rich cultural and linguistic heritage. But it is something that's very new. And it goes back to Tamor's point that it's a region of, of a people trying to figure out who they are. And, and that's a very exciting, but it can be a very daunting process, of course. So, Yara, I'm going to stick with you. Uh, could you tell us, uh, I mean, you, you you really concentrate on economics, and, and Tamara, you as well have a, a great deal of experience in economics. Uh, let's talk a little bit about economic development in, in the four countries. Yara, we'll start with you, and, and uh, Tamara, we'll turn to you next. So I think you, you're going to tackle Kazakhstan in another, um, another episode of the show, but I think briefly— you know, I would say that for a long time, economic development in Central Asia was a Kazakh story. Kazakhstan was kind of the leader. Um, and there are some reasons for that. It is a country with significant natural resources, oil and gas and mining deposits. 
and a relatively small population given how large it is. It's 19 million people. And so by exploiting those natural resources, Kazakhstan was able to um, kind of grow economically very quickly. And the standard of living in Kazakhstan uh, grew faster than in other countries in the region, and it was sort of the leader. We're at a stage now where other countries are starting to catch up, particularly Uzbekistan. Um, and uh, part of the reason that I started traveling there was that there is this effort of economic reform that was instituted by uh, President Shavkat Mirziyoyev. Uh, as Tamur mentioned, he came to office in 2016, succeeding Islam Karimov. And as part of his effort to, I think, legitimate himself and to sort of um, turn a new leaf for the country, uh, he embraced fairly early on uh, a um, an economic reform agenda that actually went to uh, change a lot of the fundamentals of how the economic system had been for the 30 years or so um, uh, following the collapse of the Soviet Union. And some of those early reforms were quite successful, uh, liberalizing the currency regime, uh, opening the country to foreign investment, uh, trying to make it easier, reducing red tape for private sector business. And you have you can see this when you go to Tashkent today, the capital, or really any of the major Uzbek cities compared to, you know, four years ago. And I'm sure Tamur can compare to his uh, childhood, and it, the difference would be even more dramatic. You know, you you can see the emergence of a what you would call a real economy, and by that I mean that Uzbekistan is by far the largest by population country in the region. It's um, 35 million people, and so it has this diversified economy based on the consumer purchasing power, and uh, the economic reforms appear to be unlocking some of that uh, untapped potential in the market. Now, the question is, will the success in Uzbekistan of this approach um, lead to a bit more of an organized and committed effort at, at economic reform in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan? We should probably write off Turkmenistan. Um, <laughs> Turkmenistan is an unusual country with a very, very centralized political system. Maybe the closest thing we can compare it to is North Korea, but the reason they kind of get away with that is that there's uh, very large natural gas reserves. And so similar to Kazakhstan, the state basically uses the wealth from those natural resources to sustain itself. So you don't have quite the same challenge of economic development. And uh, Tamar? Yes, I, I agree uh, with uh, what you are saying. Um, and I also will add that, um, you know, we should separate a little bit uh, uh, the countries inside Central Asian countries, uh, if we speak about uh, economy, but also when we speak about the political systems, um, I think uh, Turkmenistan and Tajikistan are uh, exceptions because these are the countries that are run by one family. Um, and the uh, family controls everything in uh, Turkmenistan, uh, family controls everything in Tajikistan. Um, and, and both of the economies are um, living basically uh, on the export of uh, raw uh, materials and natural resources. When we speak about Tajikistan, it will be mining and everything um, related to that. Turkmenistan, natural gas, of course. Um, uh, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan um, are a different story. They have uh, much more diversified 
um, you know, trade with the outside world. They have much uh, uh, sophisticated uh, domestic markets. Um, and um, here, Uzbekistan is a bit different from from Kazakhstan because Uzbekistan is still a very, uh, you know, protected economy. Uh, you know, on the one hand, because uh, in in the very beginning of uh, Uzbekistan's independence, Karimov uh, and and the broader political elites wanted to create a very cozy atmosphere, a bubble where they can develop their businesses, and uh, because of that, we still have a huge presence of monopolies inside Uzbekistan that control entire industries and make a lot of money out of that. Um, and uh, it will not be a secret to say that people who run those monopolies are uh, have access to uh, you know the uh, decision makers um, inside Uzbekistan. Uh, Kazakhstan is a bit more different story. Its uh, economy is much more integrated into global economy. Um, and uh, unlike Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan is a part of uh, many international organizations, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union led by Russia, the World uh, Trade Organization. And um, uh, because of that, uh, Kazakhstan is uh, you know, much, much bigger and um, has uh, successfully um, welcomed a lot of investment um, into the region and, in, in, and into the country. And Kyrgyzstan is always an exception um, uh, because of the very unique political structure um, and uh, because of the fragility of this uh, structure. But it's also changing, um, especially with the... Um, uh, upcoming to power of Sadr Japar, of the current president. He's trying to make Kyrgyzstan something uh, the same as, as other Central Asian countries where political elites will be united. They will not be busy fighting with each other, but they will be busy, um, you know, uh, um, dealing uh, with each other and controlling resources more united. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today here on National Security This Week are Esfandiar batman Gelich and Tamar Omarov, and we're discussing the strategic importance of the Central Asian republics. All right, gentlemen, I, I want to cover three different uh, kind of uh, international uh, structures that countries are a part of. Uh, if we could keep it briefly, maybe two minutes apiece on each of these, uh, that would be very helpful. Uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart, the Russian Federation was established. One of the organizations offered by Russia to sort of bolster regional cooperation was the Commonwealth of Independent States, the CIS. Another was the CSTO, or Collective Security Treaty Organization. I, I want to start first with the CIS. Yar, I want to ask you to comment first. What does that kind of economic organization look like today, the CIS? So I think CIS is a name that you would give to just the kind of fundamental economic reality that Russia remains the key trading partner for uh, the former most of the former Soviet republics the, in the Caucasus and Central Asia, um, uh, especially. And, you know, for the Central Asian countries, this has been a, a challenging few years because on one hand, there is this idea that, well, they are in an advantageous advantageous position because, first off, their domestic markets are large and growing. So there's 80 million people in Central Asia altogether. But they are, of course, uh, you know, connected to this much larger um, uh, market that is Russia. 
And so one of the questions of the economic reform that we've seen in Kazakhstan and in Uzbekistan, particularly trying to draw in more Western investment, has been, you know, how do you balance that with this legacy economic dependence on Russia and the strong role that Russia Russian uh, capital has played um, in kind of shaping those economies. Now, the added challenge has been that since uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the imposition of Western sanctions uh, on Russia, uh, the economies and, and economic policymakers in Central Asia have, have, have had to navigate a new reality. On one hand, as the kind of CIS moniker tells us, they are historically and as a matter of fact, very economically connected to Russia in terms of trade of goods, in terms of capital flows, also in terms of actually um, migrant labor. So there are significant populations of Central Asians who live and work in Russia and send back remittances to the region. And all of those relationships have been made more complicated by the kind of indirect effects of uh, Western sanctions on Russia. Um, in some ways, it has presented an opportunity to Central Asian countries because they can actually increase their trade with Russia, often acting as an intermediary for goods that are no longer being exported directly from Europe uh, to Russia. But it has also posed the challenge because, for example, banks in uh, that are trying to position themselves as reputable, internationally connected financial institutions in Central Asia have to now be wary about um, where payments are coming from, payments that may be coming from sanctioned entities in Russia. And it's a very new landscape. So the CIS, you know, obviously exists. It reflects that reality that there is these economic interconnections with Russia. But, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, there are new challenges and really a new kind of, um, a new structure is emerging to uh, that economic partnership. And Tamer, you you had direct responsibility for business development in the CIS uh, with, with the automobile manufacturing industry in, in China. Uh, what can you tell us about the CIS from an economic standpoint? It's actually funny that um, uh, many people consider CIS to be a real, um, um, you know, e economic body because it's 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 actually not. It's it's a very different uh, markets and very different economies that we're talking about. And um, um, you know, uh, many many companies that come to, I mean, used to come to uh, to Russia. They uh, used to base their office in Moscow and to deal with the whole post-Soviet um, space because it was easier and uh, from, from the logistical point of view. Um, but um, in, in reality, um, it's, it's not uh, a, a unity of countries that has unity in it. And it's not a, um, um, an organism that, you know, works on uh, similar rules, um, et cetera. When we speak about economy, I think Eurasian Economic Union here uh, is, is um, more of a something that uh, works more or less, but with the war and with sanctions, etc., it's not um, an uh, entity that um, you know is uh, capable of, uh, with uh, dealing with all of those struggles. Uh, but CIS was always seen as the platform for civilized divorce of all republics that used to be part of U USSR, um, and it, it's just a platform where uh, you know leaders and other uh, members of governments meet and discuss. 
discuss different questions, uh, whether it's uh, language questions or trade issues or visas, um, etc. Um, but um, uh, there is nothing um, really, really substantial um, out of it. Um, it's different with other organizations like uh, Collective Security Treaty Organization or Eurasian Economic Union, but CIS is, uh, in my view, um, is, is not really uh, something tangible. And Tamar, let's go ahead and follow up right away with the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Uh, as I understand it, there's been some ebbs and flows of uh, the value of that treaty organization led by by Moscow. Where, where does it kind of stand today? So CSTO is also tricky. Um, I mean, any if you take any um, integration uh, initiative or project led by Russia, it's always going to be tricky. And it's not like um, anything else that we have have around the world. Uh, for example, it's not right to compare um, CSTO to NATO. For, uh, however, Moscow really wants everyone to compare it because, you know, in the eyes of uh, the Kremlin, CSTO should be its own NATO and it should be like the proof that Russia is real great power and um, it has the same structures as the US has. Um, but in reality, CSTO uh, is much different. It was uh, for many years uh, very not um, efficient structure that couldn't help uh, the countries that are members of CSTO to cope with their uh, security crisis. For example, in Nagorno-Karabakh, um, Armenia and um, Azerbaijan have this um, issue forever, but um, um, right now we're seeing how um, Azerbaijan is taking over and um, uh, they are to uh, sign the peace treaty that will not be uh, in uh, uh, in, in Armenia's um, interest, but CSTO was ignorant and uh, completely closed uh, its eyes on uh, Armenia's security uh, question. Another uh, uh, example would be the uh, territorial conflicts that happened uh, from time to time between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Both of the countries are member of CSTO, but uh, they are uh, fighting with each other, uh, which is nonsense. Uh, but uh, CSTO was um, also uh, not taking part of um, you know of any country and not uh, even intervening into uh, resolvement of this pr problem. The reason why it happens because um, uh, the countries join CSTO not for uh, you know coming under under the umbrella of security um, of, of Russian Federation but uh, to grant Moscow a legal um, um, reasons to intervene into their domestic politics if something happens uh, with the stability of their authoritarian political regimes. And this is what actually happened in Kazakhstan in January 2022, when uh, there was an attempt of a coup, when there was huge protests. Um, uh, President Takayev called Vladimir Putin and got the support of CSTO. This was the only example when CSTO really acted on the ground. Um, and uh, it tells a lot about why CSTO exists and why countries are uh, you know, part of this organization. And uh, Yar, your thoughts on the CSTO? Yeah, I mean, I think Tamor's laid out the deficiencies really well. I mean, the only thing I'd add is that I think there is some realization among Central Asian leaders that, you know, CSTO is not a viable 
security architecture for the region. You can't rely on Russia to kind of maintain or, or protect Central Asia from various internal and external threats. And so as a kind of complement to it, or, you know, they're not, they haven't cast aside CSTO, but as a complement to it, there has been this effort, I would say, spearheaded by the leadership in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan to develop a kind of neighborhood policy where the Central Asian republics have a, a more ongoing high-level dialogue. The presidents of the republics meet more frequently in order to talk about security issues, um, including issues around, for example, border disputes that have often flared up uh, within the region. But also a big concern is actually spillover effects from Afghanistan. Mm. And so you have this dual issue of Russia not being a security guarantor in an effective way, and also the United States kind of pulling out of Afghanistan. And so there's actually more pressure for the countries in Central Asia to figure out a somewhat unified or at least aligned strategy so that they can deal with the possibility of different kinds of threats, whether that's um, you know spillover effects from the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan or the more um, significant and I think ongoing uh, challenge in the region, which is um, basically uh, Islamist terrorism and it's the threat that it uh, poses. So that neighborhood policy, I think, has been a positive outcome where, you know, in a sense, by being forced to stand on their own two feet, develop their own regional understanding of how to deal with security threats, um, it has kind of spurred uh, greater dialogue between the Central Asian leaders, and then therefore they can be engaged in multilateral formats more effectively. So both Europe and the US have basically done a kind of C5 plus one format where leaders in the European Union or the US um, uh, Secretary of State or the President can convene the five Central Asian republics together and engage in a dialogue that's possible because the Central Asian republics are talking to one another with more frequency and and with more of a a common um, at least platform, if not always a common message. So that sort of leads us to uh, what has become, I think, a pretty dominant uh, force for economic security and international cooperation: the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, organization or the SCO. Uh, the membership of that organization has grown rapidly uh, recently. Uh, I'll ask either one of you to, to start us off. What's the impact of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization on the Central Asian Republics? Okay, I'll go first. Um, I will be the guy who is very skeptical about all of the organizations here in Central Asia um, and uh, around uh, Eurasia. So I'm going to be skeptical about Shanghai Cooperation Organization as well. So uh, if we go back to history, um, actually, uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which was called in the very beginning Shanghai Five, uh, was an organization that uh, had only one goal to tackle territorial issues between uh, three independent Central Asia countries with China. And three independent um, countries of Central Asia uh, didn't uh, have you know, enough uh, resources to do that alone. That's why Russia was also included. Um, and after 
all of these territorial disputes were resolved and everyone was happy, uh, five countries of uh, this Shanghai Five didn't want to lose this platform and that is why it was renamed into Shanghai Cooperation Organization and uh, since then uh, uh, this organization actually didn't have any real tangible goals and the only thing that this organization is doing is expanding uh, and uh, the successes that uh, SCO uh, promotes in you know different summits or uh, on, on their website or social media is how many you know people live in countries that are part of C uh, CSO and and uh, what is the uh, you know territory that countries uh, occupy uh, under this uh, organization that's the only thing that they can um, you know show show off uh, with um, and um, you know saying all that of course there are some uh, advantages to be a part of this organization and different uh, countries uh, use it in in their own uh, favor for Central Asian countries it is a great platform to be um, um, you know uh, informed about the military capabilities of many different countries um, because uh, under SEO you have uh, regular uh, military drills uh, uh, with uh, all members of uh, SEO you also have access to uh, many people in uh, different governments you have uh, institutions uh, meetings uh, with the Ministry of Defense with the uh, intelligence community with the you know heads of the uh, heads of the state and uh, it creates a lot of you know networking and ties but apart from that I don't really think that uh, the organization has um, changed anything dramatically or um, um, allowed uh, Central Asian countries to have a more secure atmosphere. Yar, do you feel the same I way? Don't know Skeptical what's, what's or yours? <laughs> I I do, and I'm I'm glad Tamor went first because uh, he and his colleagues at Carnegie have done what I think is the best work of any U.S. think tank on kind of uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and and being realistic about what it means. There's a tendency, I think, when we um, are talking about these uh, efforts by China to create multilateral platforms that are sort of competing with the kinds of platforms and institutions that the US established really after World War II to feel that you know we are that this is a a major front in the competition with China that you know we are ceding ground by every country that joins SCO but you know the reality is that the US should look at its own experience in trying to set up these kinds of institutions and it's very very difficult it's one thing to create a platform where leaders can get together and at a multilateral or bilateral level figure out you know have dialogue and and engage on challenges but it's another thing to <clears throat> connect that dialogue to an actual kind of implementable set of initiatives and strategies whether those are security political or economic initiatives and you know w the us has struggled at this for decades in kind of bringing the world onto some of these platforms whether that's the united nations uh, development bank institutions like the imf or world bank or other more sub-regional um, kinds of institutions so it is natural that SCO is going to likewise struggle and that the Chinese are going to likewise struggle to um, create uh, anything near the equivalent level of actionable um, sort of uh, policy out of something like SCO. So it's a, obviously a useful thing for 
the Central Asian republics to kind of engage with. But, you know, when I speak to policymakers, let's say from Uzbekistan, they're perfectly clear eyed that there is no they're not getting, you know, dramatic, you know, country changing benefits from being part of uh, these conversations in a forum like SCO, and that it's just another kind of uh, area or arena in which world politics takes place. I mean, the hard work of development, um, you know, it's it's not going to happen just because you've created a new organization for people to get together. Sure. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Esfandiar Batman-Gelic and Tamar Umarov, and we're discussing the strategic importance of the Central Asian Republics. All right, gentlemen, uh, we are about, we got about 20 minutes or so left in the show. we got to go fast. Uh, a couple of really important questions I'd like to ask you. Uh, since Russia invaded uh, Ukraine and Vladimir Putin has, has called for increased conscription of Russian troops, from the general population, hundreds of thousands of, of Russians have fled the Russian Federation. Uh, there's been uh, this, this has been framed as sort of a, a brain drain for Russia, uh, and the Russian military really hasn't benefited much in the way of more and better troops or really even better equipment. Uh, neighboring states uh, have, however, likely benefited benefited from Russians. Uh, fleeing Putin's autocratic uh, Russia in favor of new opportunities. There was just a great uh, piece on 60 Minutes this uh, this past Sunday night talking about how many Russians have fled to Georgia, and they brought wealth and, and business development opportunities and whatnot uh, to, to Georgia. But there's some very serious concerns amongst the Georgians about how that might be used by, by Vladimir Putin to protect Russians uh, and then invade uh, invade Georgia. How have the Central Asian republics benefited from an influx of Russians? I, I have a an article here talking about hundreds of thousands of people fleeing Russia uh, after the invasion of, of Ukraine, including uh, Kyrgyzstan for, for as an example. I'm sure probably Uzbekistan is is, is part of that as well. Uh, but it, you know, these are Russians that are well educated. They bring money, technical technical expertise, uh, business experience. Uh, how have they impacted uh, the Central Asian republics? Uh, Tamar, let's let's start with you. So, um, of course, when we speak about the migration from Russia with the uh, beginning of Russia's invasion, uh, first of all, we should note that uh, the majority have left to countries like Georgia, Armenia, Turkey, um, and uh, European Union countries. Uh, much less have really stayed in Central Asia with the um, you know, when the partial mobilization has started, uh, as it is called in, in Russia on the official language, uh, in September last year, uh, millions of uh, Russians um, crossed the border with uh, Kazakhstan uh, and uh, flew to other Central Asian cities, but they never uh, were thinking about staying in Central Asia. They rather uh, saw Central Asia as a uh, middle ground between their final destination and uh, you know uh, escape plan from from Russia because there were a lot of uh, news and fake news about uh, you know Russian uh, government closing shut, shutting up the borders so uh, that uh, men uh, who are eligible for conscription couldn't leave etc etc 
that is why it was uh, a bit of a panic uh, for for the society. Uh, but since then, uh, um, I would say in in Kazakhstan, uh, uh, around uh, twenty thousand um, um, Russians um, have obtained the residency permit. It doesn't really mean that these people are uh, staying in Kazakhstan, uh, much less uh, uh, in in other uh, Central Asian countries. In um, Kyrgyzstan, it will be around eight thousand. In Uzbekistan, it will be even um, around one two thousand people. Um, uh, you know, because of the uh, differences of um, uh, of those countries' uh, migration policy. This, uh, Uzbekistan is not a part of Eurasian Economic Union. That's why for Russians, um, uh, it, it's uh, not so um, uh, you know easy from legal perspective to stay there for long term. They have to register. They have to get the residency permit. Uh, in in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, they can stay uh, for ninety days. Um, and uh, we're also talking about the uh, labor markets uh, in in those countries. Uh, you know, these countries are not those who got used to inviting migrants. These countries are actually those who export a lot of labor migrants uh, across the world. That's why for uh, Central Asian countries, the inflow of migrants was a big shock as well. Um, and uh, we've seen how the inflation was up with the uh, national currencies went down, the uh, uh, you know, assets uh, and um, uh, the uh, rent prices went up. Um, so um, it, it was a, a big um, crisis and not many got used to uh, this um, new situation. That why, you know, they left for, for other um, territories. Okay. And you are? Yeah. So as Tamor says, you know, this isn't a phenomenon of huge numbers, Um at least, and and most Russians have uh, gone on to different uh, places for those that went to Central Asia. But I have seen some like smaller sort of instances where people have uh, moved to the region that I do think are indicative of that there will be some long-term consequences and possibly positive ones uh, for countries in the region. And that has to do with instances in where in which a a multinational company, usually a European company, operating in Russia, shut down their offices in Russia. And uh, one of two things happened. Either they uh, transferred their employees to a new office uh, where uh, that employee could continue to be um, uh, employed by them, a staff member. And in many cases, what happened is that you know, they, the companies, whether it's an energy company, a consumer goods company, or a bank maybe said, well, we, we aren't going to operate in Russia anymore, but we'll take some or all of our Russian speaking staff and we will give them the option of transitioning to Central Asia where we think there are opportunities and we can actually continue to operate. The other scenario was that, well, the office closed in Russia and people were let go. Uh, and then uh, those individuals who lost their jobs had to find new opportunities. And one thing I have seen is that in some cases, they went and found jobs at large and more sophisticated Uzbek and Kazakh firms that are thinking more internationally and need people who have the experience of working in a Western or multinational company, um, have the Russian language skills and are willing to move there. And suddenly there was actually um, a small pool of talent that they could draw from, whereas previously it was always considered more attractive to be at the 
you know, HQ in Moscow, not in the regional office in Central Asia. So that that shift is there. It's a story of maybe several hundred people, not more than that, but it could have some positive effects down the line because these are individuals that bring experience of functioning in a more developed economy, more integrated with the uh, with global markets from their time in Russia, and they're bringing that experience to um, to the region in Central Asia, often working in Uzbek or Kazakh companies. And, and Tamar, we should we should highlight uh, you were working in Moscow uh, until fairly recently, what six months ago, uh, when uh, Carnegie pulled you guys out of, of of Moscow, or I should say, maybe you were PNG out of Moscow by the Russians, and now you are in Berlin, working out of Berlin. Yes, it is right. Um, not six months ago, but um, almost two years ago, oh, two years we were ago. kicked okay. out. But okay. there was a transition period where we had to travel um, before we established the center in Berlin. So um, I've been around uh, some places, especially in Central Asia. Yeah, and, and we should highlight uh, this uh, this expanded, uh, I guess, conscription process that the Russians have been using. Uh, it is my understanding, having talked to a number of people, that the Russians have really been going all across the country, the Russian Federation, and trying to grab more minority groups to con- conscript them into the military than they really are concentrating on ethnic Russians. Uh, and that, that might have some serious uh, implications from a, a morale perspective uh, in, in Ukraine. So, gentlemen, we have about uh, about 12 minutes or so, 12, 13 minutes left. Uh, there's three three more topics I want to hit on. The first is uh, the Central Asian republics and, and Afghanistan. Uh, Yar, you mentioned the United States withdrawal out of Afghanistan sort of changed the whole dynamic there. Uh, Timur, let's start with you. H- how is the relationship with the, between the Central Asian republics and Afghanistan under the control of the Taliban? It's different uh, for uh, different Central Asian countries. Um, when we speak about, um, uh, you know, countries that are um, trying to uh, trying their best to negotiate with the Taliban and to create a, um, you know, platform where everyone can exchange opinions, etc., uh, these movement will be led by Uzbekistan. And Uzbekistan, um, you know, since the uh, uh, Taliban takeover has become a uh, country that is the main negotiator right now around the world uh, when it comes to the uh, you know resolvement of uh, Af- Afghan question um, and uh, you know other countries like um, Tajikistan um, will be an, an exception from from that movement because Tajikistan is not officially uh, negotiating with the Taliban they are um, against of um, any uh, policies that will be uh, dealing with the new administration of Afghanistan and uh, they are uh, mostly talking about um, um, you know the um, rights of um, ethnic uh, minorities especially about Tajiks um, uh, but at the same time uh, Tajikistan is being 
very pragmatic in uh, continuing business uh, with the Taliban. Uh, for example, Tajikistan is providing electricity uh, to uh, the um, Afghanistan under under the Taliban. So uh, it's much more nuanced that it might look on on the surface. Um, but Uzbekistan is definitely uh, doing something something new, something that uh, Central Asian countries were not doing uh, previously when the Taliban uh, was in power back in the late 90s, um, uh, which is trying to, um, um, you know, uh, build um, uh, um, of, of, uh, kind of possibilities for in more involvement of Afghanistan into uh, the region. Uh, uh, Uzbekistan's, uh, you know, ideal scenario would be that in the nearest future, Afghanistan would become uh, a part of this economic um, um, atmosphere of, of the region and uh, will uh, contribute to uh, Uzbekistan having a diversified uh, ties with the world will become this uh, bridge uh, so afghanistan would become this bridge between Uzbek uh, central asia and south asia um uh, but uh, there are still many many problems and obstacles in in this direction and yar any any thoughts from you on this uh, any concerns that you're hearing about the taliban trying to export their particular brand well i mean i think Tamor's point about the idea that Afghanistan should be a bridge between Central Asia, South Asia, Central Asia, and the Middle East is really um, exactly kind of where we should be heading in the ideal world. It's just very difficult to get there. And a lot of that has to do with the legacy of how Afghanistan was treated and what the challenge of try trying to stabilize Afghanistan was uh, during the period from 2001 um, until the US withdrawal, which was U.S. policy really, really treated Afghanistan as a kind of island unto itself and, and really didn't think of it as a country that not only needed to be stabilized on its own terms, but integrated into a wider region as part of its long-term kind of economic viability. Um, and so, you know, I was recently driving from Tashkent up to the mountains um, to do some hiking. And for the first time, I saw a car with an Afghanistan license plate. And that sort of really hit home for me the idea that, you know, we are not, Afghanistan is not some faraway place when you're in Central Asia. It's right there over the border. There's incredible deep historical links. There is this inherent kind of interdependency around things like uh, where the water comes from for the region and uh, shared uh, resources. And so it's something that fundamentally um, the leadership in Central Asia has to deal with. The real hangup has been um, for a long time and, and remains, I think, a major concern is the idea that Afghanistan is principally a source of instability and threat because it is a kind of breeding ground or, you know, locus for um, Islamist terrorism and the idea that the Taliban uh, and also uh, groups affiliated with ISIS can use Afghanistan as a kind of um, as a base from which to begin to influence events in Central Asia. Uh, but I do think that it's positive that the governments in the region uh, appear to be seeing engagement. And as you know, not everyone has officially sort of recognized the Taliban and, and is engaging with them directly. But there is a kind of pragmatic idea that you can't treat Afghanistan as an island. You can't pretend that it's far, far away and that you have to try and 
um, stabilize it actually through greater into in interconnection and engagement and that appears to be a, a learning from basically what the US was trying to do um, in as the leader of the coalition in Afghanistan. And it remains to be seen whether it will succeed, but um, they are trying to meet the challenge head on. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, about halfway through the US involvement in Afghanistan, uh, I heard some of the more <clears throat> enlightened national security thinkers uh, voice the idea that to solve the challenges of Afghanistan actually requires bringing in all of the countries in the region to be a part of the solution, including Iran. Uh, so that went over, you know, really well in, in certain circles in American politics, unfortunately. Uh, let me ask one other question before we get to the, the last question of the day. Turkmenistan, we, we've already commented on the fact that it's, it, is a, it is a very unique entity unto itself. It is on the border with the Republic, you know, Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, Iran and Israel are sort of going at it uh, uh, through proxies uh, to a certain extent right now on Iran's part. Uh, those two countries, Iran and Israel, have been in a strategic standoff for a long time now. Uh, what concerns do the people and, and the governments in the Central Asian republics have over Iran's activities uh, in the Middle East? Uh, while the Central Asian republics aren't in the Middle East, uh, being contigu contiguous neighbors to what has become a somewhat volatile region, I, I would think, raises some concerns. And, and Yar, we'll start with you, and I'll give Timur the, the closing thoughts on this question. Yeah, so I think the relationship between the Central Asian uh, republics and Iran has evolved a lot. Um, I think Iran was for a long time seen as a as a source of, again, risks or threat, um, particularly because it is, after all, an Islamic republic. And, uh, you know, the Central Asian republics are meant to be secular republics. They come from different kind of political traditions. Uh, but there has been this kind of, again, pragmatic engagement, and there is a more high-level uh, dialogue between the Iranian government and um, particularly the governments of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. I believe that President Mirziyoyev, the president of Uzbekistan, made a state visit to Iran um, earlier this year. But it's similar in some ways to the story with Russia, in that uh, Iran is, again, uh, isolated uh, largely because of its disagreements with the US. It is under the strongest sanctions program ever levied on a major economy. And so although you would imagine that there would be this significant level of economic exchange, Iran being actually the best route that Central Asian countries have to global trade, uh, because it's the quickest route to get to a major port, that's not being fully utilized. And so arguably, until those kind of challenges are overcome, you know, not only is the Iranian relationship with Central Asia going to be kind of stymied, but also I would say that there, you know, there's untapped potential economically for Central Asian countries. And what's, I think, a shame about this as an Iranian American that has traveled in Central Asia, um, knowing that, you know, in, in Samarkand, I can sometimes get by with my Farsi, with my Persian, um, you know, it's these are two regions that are really part of one, again, to go back to this idea of neighborhood. And they have historically been dealt with as two separate regions, and the policies have not been aligned. But coming up with a more integrated approach where, let's say, Western policy realizes that maybe we shouldn't be the one standing in the way of pragmatic engagement that's in the mutual interest of Iran and Central Asia, 
that may be something that should be looked at down the line, uh, again, as a lesson of the last couple decades. Yeah, and Tamar, your thoughts? I would just add um, uh, on uh, a little bit uh, the fact that, um, you know, Tajikistan in five Central Asian countries is uh, an exception because in all other four uh, Central Asian countries, uh, these countries are Turkic uh, language countries and part of this, um, you know, Turkic uh, organization um, of uh, that, that is run by Turkey, obviously. Um, and Tajikistan uh, fuels itself as, as a, um, you know, exception here. And that is why um, there is a uh, connection between Tajikistan and Iran. Uh, during Soviet times, Moscow really didn't want um, Iran to be anyhow engaged um, uh, in in the region, but now it's changing, and we'll see how um, uh, you know Tajikistan and Iran diplomatically are getting closer, and on even sensitive security questions are cooperating. Uh, there is presumably a uh, even a um, manufactory uh, based in Tajikistan that is building Iranian drones uh, that are known to be used by the uh, Russia in, in the war in Ukraine. So uh, when we speak about Central Asia, I would uh, pay my attention um, to Tajikistan, uh, cons considering that um, you know there is this um, uh, connection with, with Iran. Uh, and Tamar, let, let's continue on with you. Uh, what what are the critical U.S. interests in Central Asia, and and why should Americans care about what is happening in the Central Asian republics? Is is it principally uh, the potential impact of Belt and Road, China's investment uh, across the Central Asian region? I mean, as we've talked today, I, I sort of get a sense that. Uh, there's a bit of a psychology that the Central Asian republics, the region, feels isolated but is ready to break out to become, you know, connected, fully connected to the rest of the world. Uh, I mean, wh why should Americans care about what's happening in Central Asia? It's a great question. I... Um you know, uh, uh, to be honest, I'm not an American and I don't know. I think uh, Americans themselves uh, know much better than me, especially those who, um, you know, are experts on, on Central Asia. Um, and uh, it's it's really a, a great question to ask, why would the U.S. care about five uh, countries that are landlocked and sandwiched between Russia and China um, and, and Iran and Afghanistan? Uh, in, in the middle of uh, continental Asia. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, America is uh, the most influential country around the world. And, um, you know, can, can you name a country where America is not present? Uh, this is uh, uh, firstly, and also uh, for um, America, of course, uh, Central Asia mattered um, a lot when uh, the there was a military presence in Afghanistan uh, but since the withdrawal uh, this part of uh, um, America's 
um, you know, interest in, in Central Asia is no longer existent, but there are still uh, questions that, you know, matter a lot for uh, Washington, uh, especially when we speak about uh, democracy, when we speak about uh, authoritarian rejuvenation and uh, Russia's and China's uh, positions around the world. Um, um, America really uh, cares according to the, uh, you know, official statements about resilience of countries like Central Asia uh, when it comes to uh, their relationship with the world and especially with Russia and China. So I think that would be it. Um, and of course, we should speak about, you know, economic interests that America has in, in Central Asia, specifically in Kazakhstan. But I think uh, that Kazakhstan will be covered in your next episodes. So for somebody who d who says they don't they don't know what why America would be interested, I think you got a pretty good handle on why America is interested in the Central Asian Republics. And uh, Esfandiar, uh, your thoughts? I mean, I guess the question is, what does that look like in practice? I mean, I fully agree with Tamor. The quickest way to explain the absence of the U.S. in the region is that a, a U.S. president has never visited Central Asia. Um, and in fact, in just I think later this week or early next week. President Macron, the French president, will be going to Central Asia, and he's taking a delegation of 15 business leaders, and it's it, he has welcomed uh, Central Asian leaders for state visits. And what I think this illustrates is, you know, Tamor asked, why would these countries matter for the U.S.? Well, even more so, why would these countries matter for France? And I think the answer there is that to the extent that there are certain countries in the world that have a unique degree of political and economic influence, it's kind of incumbent on them to use that influence constructively. And, you know, Central Asia is a region where you have these um, dynamic populations going through this important period of transition. And without being prescriptive, I think we can be supportive constructively. And there's a distinction there. I think, you know, I, I really admire that Tamor said, well, I'm not American, so how am I going to answer that question? I'd say a lot of Americans in think tanks or in the policy community do not have the same self-awareness not to prescribe an answer for what, why a certain country should matter or what the policy imperatives of a different government or people should be. So, you know, we should be careful about being too prescriptive, but we should also believe that we can have a positive impact. And unfortunately, the U.S. is far more absent in the region um, than it should be. And, you know, I'm, I have probably been to, to Uzbekistan 20 times in the last uh, four, four years or so. And I can count kind of on one hand how many Americans I've met just out and about who are not, you know, embassy staff. And it's interesting because... I have met a lot of French, Italians, people from the uh, Persian Gulf region, you know, um, people from Far East Asia. For a global superpower, we are surprisingly absent in a lot of parts of the world in ways that I think we should be. And that, my friends, is why we are doing this series of shows on the Central Asian Republics, because there is a recognition, I think, that the importance of, of the region. Uh, so bo for both of you, Yara and Timur, as we close out the show today, final thoughts uh, Tamar, we'll start with you. What are the last thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners about the Central Asian Republics? Firstly, I want to thank you for doing this show and dedicating it uh, to Central Asia. I think this um, is is a very important thing um, to uh, you know talk about uh, much more about the region and to uh, talk about it um, uh, without um, uh, you know a spe specific. 
uh, glue to Russia or to China. Um, and uh, it leads me to uh, thinking of uh, the uh, new uh, initiative that we are uh, launching at Carnegie, which is called uh, Continental Asia, where we try to uh, refocus the attention of many decision makers on this specific region, because uh, in most of the times when you speak about Asia, many people imagine maritime Asia, uh, but uh, this whole continent is uh, left uh, without um, attention that um, is, is actually it's uh, worthy of. Um, uh, that is why, yeah, I want to, uh, you know, close up by saying that um, uh, there are many things, uh, many fascinating things are happening in this part of the world. Um, and uh, it's not necessarily connected to uh, the big uh, you know, animals in the forest as Russia and China, but um, uh, ha happening just in, just inside uh, this region. And you are? So I knew this question was coming and I was thinking, you know, what am I going to say? And I promise you, I'm not on the payroll of any tourism promotion board of Central Asia, but I, I really do want to say to the listeners, like, Consider traveling to the region. I think Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan uh, are total are places where you can go, you can visit. And I think uh, seeing the region up close at this particular moment in in time and at this moment in in the history of the region um, is will be really fascinating. And of course, there's incredible rich history, natural wonders. And frankly, if more Americans just go as tourists, you know, really interesting things happen from changing perceptions about a place and and creating a sense that actually that distance between the US and Central Asia is not as big as it might seem and that there's more um time when when these countries are in our minds and as part of how we see the world so that's my humble plea is just uh look up the flights tonight and and book a ticket and you will have a life experience that you won't forget all right, so Tamar Umarov, uh, what are you working on right now uh, for, in the way of research at uh, Carnegie, and when we when might we see your writings published so we can consume them? So I actually yesterday sent out my research plan to um, our director, and uh, I have nine, pa nine papers uh, that are upcoming uh, in this uh, year. Um, so uh, this and next year, actually, um, uh, the current thing that I'm working on would be on the uh, integration pro processes that are happening in Central Asia. Um, and uh, the, this would be a paper about the journey of um, uh, forced uh, integration in Central Asia into the embraced one. And Yar, how about you? What are you working on these days? So I was just finishing up a book chapter actually on Russia-Iran relations uh, for a forthcoming edited volume. And I think actually uh, one of Tamor's colleagues, Nicole Grajewski, who is one of the people that's written a lot about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, she has a chapter in that book too. There's a little bit in there about Central Asia, but um, it's been a it's been an interesting project. And, um, you know, I think uh, something that can be ex we should be doing more of that research on central asia for its own terms as well which is why i'm so glad to have um that carnegie's doing the initiative that tamor mentioned and when is that book uh, coming out 
That's a great question. <laughs> you know, I've learned academic publishing is like this, you know, it will appear when it appears, but I think it's um, Oxford University Press and Hearst. Uh, so they're probably doing a good job making sure it's uh, correctly edited and, and put together. Fair enough. Fair enough. Esfandiar Batman Yelij and Tamar Umarov, thank you both for joining us today here on National Security This Week. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And folks, that closes this this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.